morning. Before I begin, I want to remind students and parents that are going to camp tomorrow, we leave at 6.30, so we'll be here bright and early, and uh, if we haven't already received your release forms and, and the required paperwork, make sure that you bring that with you. If you have your Bible with you today, please turn to Matthew 24. It's going to take us the whole morning to get to that passage, but when we do, you're not going to want to miss it. In schoolyards across America, there are a few things that no matter where you're at are the same. You know, there are there are different things that affect how things are. There's, there's region, the region you're from, and, and socioeconomic conditions, and, and the demographics of an area. They all, they all make up what a schoolyard looks like. But there are a few things that are universal, such as what you say when someone gets caught in a lie. Everybody knows it, right? Liar, liar, pants on fire. Hang them on a telephone wire. Is that a weird saying or what? I mean, we all know that lying is wrong. That's obvious. We, we know that from a young age. But do you think that there was actually a, a time or a place where if somebody got caught in a lie, they set their pants on fire? Well, Justin, I caught you lying. Come here, let's get the gasoline. Pour it on, light you up. And then string them up on a telephone pole. Burn them alive. Have you ever wondered where that saying could possibly have come from? I have. So I did what I do anytime there's an important subject and I need to know about it. I need to know what it means. I go to the ultimate authority, Wikipedia. In the words of the great scholar Michael Scott, on Wikipedia, anyone at all can write anything they want about any topic. So you know you're getting the best available information. Unfortunately, when I went to Wikipedia to try to find out the origin of liar, liar, pants on fire, it was silent. It had nothing to say. Now, Wikipedia's ugly cousin site, Wiktionary, didn't list the origin of liar, liar, pants on fire, but it did tell us a meaning. It said that what it means is there will be discomforting consequences to lying. Makes sense. That didn't satisfy me. So I decided to search all over the Internet, on the line, Google the tubes. And I'm sad to tell you that I couldn't find anything. Nobody on the internet knows where that saying came from. I think I know what it means, though. I think it means, um, you're in trouble. I'm telling and you're going to get a spanking. Your pants are going to be on fire. Regardless of what it means, though, regardless of the origin, 
One thing that the fact that there is that limerick does, the fact that there are kids on schoolyards all across the country saying, liar, liar, pants on fire, does one thing. It shows us one point, and that is that we all know from a young age that lying is wrong and that there are going to be consequences. Obviously, there are scriptures about lying. If you look in Proverbs 12, 22, it says that the Lord detests lying lips. Psalms 5, 6 says that the Lord will destroy he who tells lies. And then in Leviticus, obviously, it's one of the, the big ten, right? I mean, we, Leviticus, there's tons and tons of laws that God gave out, but we have a certain set that we call the big ten. And one of those is thou shalt not lie. But what is lying exactly? Is lying just telling someone something that isn't true? Like, KD, you're a better looking man than I am. Is that, is that the only thing that, that lying is? And I'm kidding because we all know he's better looking than I am. Or does it include like omissions of truth? When the Bible says thou shalt not lie, does it mean you're supposed to tell the whole truth? And what about those little white lies that we tell for people's own good? Like this morning, Christina told me that these clothes don't make me look fat. Are those okay? What about lies concerning a a bunny that brings candy or a fat man with toys. A crazy lady that sneaks into your room at night and buys your teeth from you. Where do we draw the line in what forms of dishonesty are okay and what are not? For that matter, are any forms of dishonesty okay? I'll tell you one thing. That's a really great sermon for somebody to preach someday. Luckily, that guy's not me. Because this morning, what I'm going to do is I'm going to focus on one specific type of lying and leave you to sort the rest out yourself. Today, I want to talk about living a lie. The Cambridge Dictionary defines living a lie as living in a way that is dishonest because you are pretending to be something you're not either to yourself or to other people. Living in a way that's dishonest because you're pretending to be something that you're not either to yourself or to other people. This morning, church, I want to ask you a favor. I'd like you to keep an open mind. And later on, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to challenge you to evaluate yourself and determine whether or not you are living a lie. Because I propose that several of us are. The most frequently used words in the New Testament are God, Jesus, Lord, Father, and Spirit. They're used over 3,000 times. Kind of makes sense because the Bible is basically about God, right? About his relationship with us. Second place are the words for faith or believe. They're used over 500 times. 
But then a strong third are different words for love. The word love is used around 230 times in the New Testament. And over half of those uses are the agape love that Pastor Kyle talked about a few weeks ago. Agape love is the unconditional love that God has for his children. It's the love that we read about in 1 Corinthians 13 that is patient and kind, that isn't jealous or arrogant or rude. It's a love that doesn't think about itself. A love that isn't irritable and doesn't keep any record of wrongdoing. It's a love that, among other things, never stops believing, never stops hoping, and never gives up. Those of you who have children who aren't saved, you really connect with that part of agape love. Because you never stop believing, you never stop hoping, you never give up. You pray for them every day that they're going to turn around. Agape love is a perfect love. It's a love that Christians are commanded by Jesus to have for three specific groups of people. Number one, we're supposed to love our fellow Christians. Love your brothers, love one another. In John 13, 34, and 35, Jesus says, I'm giving you a new commandment. Love each other in the same way that I have loved you. Everyone will know that you are my disciples because you love each other. Did you catch that? He didn't say that everyone's going to know you're my disciples because your women have long hair and your men have short hair. Or because your buns are the highest and your skirts are the lowest. He didn't say people are going to know that you're my disciples by how well you can quote the Bible. Or by how effectively you can defend your faith on social media. None of that. The way that people will know we're his disciples is by our love. Two two chapters later, Jesus, I think, really wants to get the point through to his disciples. They're still in this conversation. In verse 9, he says, I have loved you the same way the Father has loved me, so live in my love. Verse 12, love each other as I have loved you. That's what I'm commanding you to do. And verse 17, love each other. This is what I'm commanding you to do. You think Jesus wants us to love each other? He said it'd basically be the badge or the uniform by which people would recognize we're Christians. So how well are we doing on this church on loving one another? I mean, I love, I love a lot of y'all, some more than others. I love Tammy Hill. I love her cheesecake. I'll sit down and eat a whole cheesecake in one sitting. You let me. I love folks that volunteer their time at the church. I love folks that give. I mean, I'm doing right, right? I'm doing what the Lord commanded. I can tell you that I, 
think that the church as a whole is doing a terrible job of loving one another. We do a pretty good job of fighting, though. Man, we can fight. We can fight about whether or not to speak in tongues, and if so, how loudly and longly. We can fight about whether, how wet people are supposed to get when we baptize them. We just going to sprinkle them or we going to drown them? Here we believe in drowning them, amen? As soon as we're done here, we're going to drown a few up there. Stick around, you'll love it. We fight about whether to put the words to songs in a book or on the wall. Right? We fight over pews versus chairs. And then whenever we decide, we fight over which one's ours. I like this part of the sermon. It's where everybody's having fun. It's going to get ugly in a minute. We're good at fighting, but how good are we at loving? I think about all the people that I've seen throughout the years, good people who needed God, who left the church because of mean, gossipy, backbiting Christians. I look at that and I ask myself, how well are we doing at loving one another? I think the answer is not well enough. We're also commanded to love our enemies. In Matthew 5, we read Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. And towards the end of that sermon, verses 43 through 45, he says this. You've heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you this, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. And listen to this. He says, in this way, you show that you are children of the Father in heaven. How do we show that we're God's children? Everybody say love. Everybody scream love. He says, in this way, you will show that you're my Father's children by loving Luke was there that day and heard Jesus a little bit differently. In chapter 6 of Luke, verses 27 and 28, he quotes him as saying, But I tell everyone who is listening, love your enemies. Be kind to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. And pray for those who insult you. Be kind to those who hate you. Is it just me or is that way up at the top of the list of things easier said than done? We're just not wired that way. I mean, we're wired. We're created in God's image and God is a just God. We're wired for justice. We're wired an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. not wired to be nice to the people who hate us. That's what Jesus commands. Jesus is saying, love your enemies. Be kind to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. And pray for the ones who insult you. Man, I'll be praying for a lot of people.
I felt like Pastor Kyle said it so well when he preached a few weeks ago. He said that loving God and loving people is, number one, our greatest calling. Number two, our greatest service. But unfortunately, our most difficult command to follow because it requires that we love our enemies. Church, I don't have to tell you that we are living in a time where we have real enemies. There is a focused and concerted effort to attack the church. There are a lot of people who hate us. Sadly, most of the time, the way that I see the church responding to those people is directly opposite of what Jesus commands. You need to know I'm preaching to myself here. Jesus says, love to them, be kind to them, bless them, and pray for them. What I see is the church judging them, mocking them, fighting them, and posting about them on Facebook. How is that love? I see a church that is screaming from the rooftops, you're a sinner, you're a sinner. Instead of whispering in their ear, Jesus loves you, and so do I. I see a church that has selected certain sins that bother them more than other sins do. And they've started an all-out war, not against the sin, but against the sinner. I see a church that sometimes doesn't even see people. It just sees their sin. A church that identifies people by their sin. Now let me be clear. I am not at all saying that we condone sin. I'm not saying that we participate in it. I'm not saying that we perform weddings that go against our religious beliefs. And I'm not saying that we open the ladies' room for any man that wants to put on a dress. But what I am saying, what God is saying today, is that you are supposed to love the people who are trying to make you do that. Just as much as you love the person sitting next to you. What I see coming out of the church today honestly looks very little like love. And a lot more like hate. It certainly doesn't look like kindness. Y'all can start shouting whenever you want because it's a good word. It's a hard word, but it's a good one. Church, I think that God is really trying to get through to, to our fellowship, to specifically Trinity Fellowship, about love. 
Let me tell you why I think that. A few weeks ago, Pastor Kyle preached his last sermon here. And I wasn't able to be in here that day. I think I was in children's church. I go there once a month. So I didn't hear his sermon. And I'm the guy that's responsible for uploading all of our sermons to the website. And and when I do that, I usually listen to them. And I've been a few weeks behind because I've been kind of busy lately. So I didn't get to upload Kyle's sermon until Thursday of this week. And I didn't get to listen to it until yesterday when I was on my way to a family reunion after I wrote this sermon, after God gave me this word. For those of you that were here the week that he preached, you're already ahead of me because you know that Kyle basically preached my sermon three weeks ago. The church, I'm not the smartest man around, but I'm smart enough to know that when God gives two men unbeknownst to one another, the same word for the same group of people, he's trying to get through to those people. The main difference between Kyle's preaching this and mine is that he got to do it on his last day. Hopefully I don't. Yes, church, we have enemies. We're commanded to love them. We have people who hate us, people who wish that we would just close the doors and go away forever. We're supposed to be kind to them. And one more thing before I move on. You need to understand that not every member of the LGBT community is your enemy. Being a sinner doesn't make you an enemy of Christians. There are people in that community who are absolutely our enemies. Who have started a war against us. But how does that give us permission to apply that label to every single person in that community? Every member of the LGBT community. Community is not, not your enemy, just like every drunk isn't your enemy. And every drug addict isn't your enemy. And every pimp and every prostitute and every other sinner on the face of the earth doesn't have to be your enemy. Some of those people aren't your enemies. They're just sinners who need to meet Jesus. Just like you would be if not for the grace of God. And honestly, just like some of us still are, even with the grace of God. Those people go into a third category of people that we're supposed to love. They're our neighbors. Matthew chapter 22, the Pharisees are trying to trick Jesus into saying something that will get himself in trouble. So they ask him, which one of the commandments that that Moses taught us is the greatest? Jesus just answered them. Verse 37 through 40, he says, 
Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. That is the greatest and most important commandment. You know what's funny? They didn't ask him about number two, but he went ahead and told them anyways. He said, the second one is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. And he says, all of Moses' teachings and the prophets hang on these two commandments. In other words, if you do these two things, it'll all take care of itself. Love your neighbor as you love yourself. Guys, I don't know about you, but I love myself a lot. I give myself just about anything I want. If I want ice cream, I give myself ice cream. That's what I look like I do. If I want a toy, I have enough money, I buy the toy. If not, I save up the money, and then I buy myself a toy. I love myself a lot. We're supposed to love every single person that we come into contact with like we love ourselves, regardless of their sin, regardless of the condition of their heart. We're talking about agape love. We're talking about unconditional love. We're talking about 1 Corinthians 13 love. You know, I was reading that passage this week, 1 Corinthians 13. I noticed something. It says, it tells us all about love, all about agape love, and it tells us that it's patient and kind and, and all the things that I said earlier. It never said love is picky. It never said love gets to choose. What I see in the church today is really good Christian people who love the Lord. Really good Christian people who love the Lord being picky about who gets their love. We love great. I mean, we really do. We Church, we know how to love. We serve people. We help the needy. We feed people. We clothe people. We pray for one another. We give of our time and our talents and our treasures. We love really well when we love. The problem is we're pretty selective with who we love. The church has been so busy trying to separate ourselves from sin that we've put up invisible walls around us that don't just keep out the sin, they keep out the sinner. And then we wonder why people aren't getting saved. That's not the model that Jesus laid out for us. You know, Jesus is the ultimate example of agape love. So I decided to look through the Bible and and see how Jesus interacted with sinners. You know what I found? Jesus didn't judge. Jesus didn't identify people based on their sin. He saw people as people. People who were sick and needed help. Wherever they were, he loved them. He just loved them. Didn't matter who they were. Didn't matter what their sin was or how deep they were buried in it. In John 4, Jesus 
meets the Samaritan woman at the well and he asks her for some water. You know what's so huge about him saying, give me a glass of water to a Samaritan woman? Jews hated Samaritans. They thought they were lower than dogs. And he wasn't ordering her to do something because she was like a dog. He was showing her, hey, I'll take water from you. You're not lower than me. You have a bucket there. Would you give me some water? He was showing her love. He didn't judge her because she'd been married and divorced three times and was living with a man that wasn't her husband. He treated her with respect. He didn't call out her sin. He offered her what she needed most, which was living water. I should have brought a bunch of little empty cups that I could hand out and you all could just go giving out living water to everyone. Put it on your dashboard and remind you. Go to Walmart, get a cup, do it. That's a commandment. Not God, me. In Matthew 9, we see Jesus with the tax collectors and sinners. You know what he did with them? He sat down and ate. John chapter 8, they bring the woman that was caught in the very act of adultery. They bring her before Jesus. They say, the law says we've got to stone this woman. What do you say? He didn't say anything. Knelt down, drew in the dirt. They kept asking him, what do we do? What do we do? What do we do? He said, all right, let's stone her. Whichever one of you is without sin, you throw the first one. Sat back down and started drawing in the dirt again. Looked up a few minutes later and everybody, her was gone. He said, nobody's going to condemn you. He said, I don't either. Go and don't sin anymore. Jesus showed love. In Luke 19, when Jesus met the chief tax collector, Zacchaeus, he went to his house and had dinner with him. Are you guys seeing a pattern here? I, I kind of picked up on a pattern. When Jesus ran into sinners, regardless of what their sin was, he just loved all over them. He had dinner with them. He forgave them. He didn't condemn them. He didn't judge them. The one man who had the right to judge their sin, the one man who has ever lived and walked on this earth who had the right to judge their sin chose to love instead. Now, don't get me wrong. He's going to judge. He will judge sin. He's the ultimate judge, and he's going to come back and judge it. But do you know what judging sin right now is like? It's like a teacher handing out a test, and before you get to take it, taking it up and grading it. How are they going to pass that test? They hadn't had time yet. Even as Jesus was hanging from the cross, the soldiers were mocking him, casting lots for his clothes. Could have judged him, could have killed him right there on the spot. Could have screamed out, you're a sinner, you're a sinner. Instead, he prayed for him. He said, God, please forgive them. 
because they don't know what they're doing. Church, there's a lot of sinners out there that we are condemning, we're judging, we're, we're yelling at, we're fighting with. What we ought to do is be praying for them, saying, God, please forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. Give them more time, God. And then we ought to be going out and showing them love with our hands and with our feet. We ought to be going out and, and, and treating them just like we treat one another, but even better, to let them know God loves you. I wonder how many, if we went to a bar and just started yelling at all the drunks that they were sinners, I wonder how receptive they would be of that message. Probably just about as receptive as the LGBT community is when Christians say, you're a sinner, you're a sinner, you're going to hell, stop it. How many of you stopped your sin before you got saved? Church, it's about time we stop identifying people by their sin and just start seeing people who need Jesus. People who need love. Finally, we get to our text. Somebody said, thank God. In Matthew 24, Jesus is telling his disciples what it's going to be like in the end. Which, by the way, we're really close. Verse 9, he says, Then you will be handed over to be persecuted and put to death. You will be hated by all nations because you're committed to me. He says, At that time, many people will turn away from the faith, will betray and hate each other because they can't handle it. He says, and many false prophets will appear and they'll deceive many people. And he says this in verse 12. Because of the increase in wickedness, the love of most will grow cold. Church, I'm afraid that's what we're seeing happen today. We've got a church full of people, and I don't mean our church, I mean the church. We've got a church full of people who are seeing so much wickedness, so much sin, that our love for those sinners is growing cold. The other day I was talking with some of our students about love. And I asked some of our high school boys what the perfect example that they've ever seen of love is, of unconditional love that doesn't care who you are or what you've done. And we all know that Jesus is the perfect example, but he's kind of hard to relate to in that way because he was God. But one of the boys said something that that really kind of just set off a light bulb in my mind. He said, my mom. Church, think about that for a minute. What's a mom's love like? It never gives up. 
never stops hoping, never condemns or judges. You know, in the end of the world, Jesus and God are going to judge humanity. You imagine if that was a mama up there judging her kid? Say, yeah, I know he's done all this stuff. He's a terrible person, but come on, he's done some good stuff too. You got to let him in. Living a lie is living in a way that is dishonest because you're pretending to be something that you are not. Either to yourself or to other people. Jesus says that the way that people will know us is by our love. I can't help but think that some of us are living a lie. Because we're Christians. But we're not showing the world that. We're lying to them. Lying to them about what a Christian is and, and how a Christian behaves. And I think a lot of us are lying to ourselves about what a Christian is and how a Christian behaves. Anyone who knows me very well knows that I'm probably the worst person in the world to preach this particular sermon. Take a spiritual giftings test, my mercy is negative five. Compassion's about the same. This week, the Lord has broken my heart. He's changed me. There's a new app that Cindy Swearingen told me about. It's called Periscope, where people can take their phones and live stream from wherever they're at or whatever they're doing. This morning, Shay's been sitting there with my phone live streaming this whole thing. I kind of got addicted to the app. I mean, I'm everywhere I'm at, if I'm not doing something, I'm I'm periscoping. I'm just I'm watching people buy their groceries. I mean, it's ridiculous. Don't get the app, it's completely pointless. It'll get better, but right now it's it's not. I'll tell you that to tell you that. The HRC, Human Rights Council, I think is what they call themselves, is the number one proponent of the homosexual agenda in America today. The other day they did a live stream about the Supreme Court situation that's going on right now, and they were talking about it. And, and on Periscope, you can, as you're watching, you can type things to to the people. You know, you can, you, it's like chat and... And other people see what you type and people interact. And I'm not proud to tell you this, but as I was watching that, I was, I was taking shots at homosexuals. I was picking on them. I was, I was being mean.
that's one of your pastors doing that. I know you're all better than me, but I wonder how many of us, if we're really honest and really evaluate ourselves, would say, man, I haven't been showing love. I know it's late. We have a baptism to do still. Jameson, would you please go to that back door? If you're here for the baptism, if, if you're being baptized or, or you have children or, or, or students who are, Jameson's going to go to this back corner very, very quickly, he is, so that we don't disrupt the service and the atmosphere. I want to dismiss you right now. Follow him. He's Jameson, take him to the choir room. The restroom's back there. Show him where they can change clothes. Josh, if you could let Pastor Angie know that we're headed back. I told you up front it wasn't an easy word. When God showed me what I was preaching, I, uh, I texted Pastor Angie because she's the only other pastor in town. I said, I need you to pray for me. Pray that I'll say the right things. Pray that I'll have wisdom and pray that I'll have boldness. Because no matter how hard it is to hear, no matter how many people get mad at me, God is trying to get through to us, church. If we become a church that loves people, this thing's going to go to a whole new level. I'm going to ask the prayer team again if you would come up to the front. Church, in just a minute, I'm going to pray and then we're going to open these altars. If you want to come and pray with someone, they're here, they're waiting. If you want to come to an altar and kneel down by yourself and pray, that's awesome too. If you want to find a place anywhere in this room. But there's people here today that need to repent. And there's people here today that need to ask God to teach them how to love again. There's people in here whose love has grown cold because of all the wickedness. And they need to ask God to heat it up again. And I want to give you the time to do that. Father God, thank you for this day. Lord, thank you for this word. Lord, thank you for changing my heart. God, forgive me. Forgive me of, of who I've been. Forgive me of the way I've been and the people that I have harmed and hurt by my words and actions. Lord, please don't let it be the case that I've driven anyone so far away that they'll never come back. Lord, I know you're speaking this word to our church to change our DNA. Lord, I pray that you'll let it sink into our hearts today that we will repent that we will change and that you will begin to teach us and show us how to love 
that people aren't going to see us as the church that that accepts sin, but they're going to see us as the church that loves sinners, God. Do a work today, Lord. In Jesus' name. Church, let's pray.